This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Doubleline Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Doubleline has no obligation to provide updates or changes. Hello, we are recording today live from the Inside ETF conference on Wednesday, June 1st, and we are joined by a special guest, Ugo Egbeniki. Egbeniki. See, I just had to look at him. <laughs> I, I don't want to butcher it. I've already done it four times. So, Ugo, thanks for joining us today, and thanks, thanks for, for playing along. Me, guys. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, so Ugo, if you don't know, he's a fixed income specialist at Jane Street, works on the institutional desk for the sales and trading team, puts out a lot of great commentary, makes markets. We're going to learn a lot more about him today. So, Ugo, just start off. What got you in the business? Give us a little bit of background and oh, uh, tell us about you. So what started me? Uh, I guess I would say it was a guy by the name of Stephen O'Grady, who has since passed away, but he used to be a partner slash managing director at Kellogg Capital. Uh, when I went to school at Bowdoin, so I went to school in Maine, Bowdoin undergrad, I originally and still am in spirit a pre-med major. Okay. Uh, Bowdoin, as some of you may know, is a liberal arts school. So there is no actual pre-med major. Yeah. So there came a time when I had to decide what exactly it was that I was gonna choose to major in. And at the time I thought I was gonna be an English major. I had kind of fallen in love with this idea of uh, following in the footsteps of uh, you know all these like great authors that came from the Northeast and kind of writing in the Natick and Maine. I remember coming home the summer of my sophomore year and my uncle had said to me, he's like, there's no future in being an English major. And I kind of retorted back. I was like, well, I'm going to apply to medical school. He's like, no, it's a stupid idea. Uh, <laughs> Lots of encouragement in your family, huh? Oh, ton of encouragement. Uh, so I decided to major in economics. I was already interested in economics. I'd studied econ a little bit in high school, just self-taught. And uh, from there, got a little bit more involved in thinking about finance. And at the time... The rationalization that I made in my head was, I'll go off, I'll do investment banking for exactly two years, I'll pocket two bonuses, uh, hopefully, and then take that money and go to med school and not be completely broke. Unfortunately, uh, 2008 happened. Uh, and I graduated from the class of 2009. So the employment prospects were actually quite bleak. And there was this funny thing going on on campus at the time where we would have you know, the typical bulge bracket IBs show up on campus to recruit. But around this same time in the fall of 2008 was when TARP discussions were still ongoing. And everybody had to sort of give the impression that they were solvent on their balance sheets. And so all these banks were coming on campus to recruit and nobody was hiring by the end of the year. And just so our listeners know, TARP is not what you put over your tent. This is the Troubled Asset <laughs> Relief Program yes. that was uh, the first, what we now call QE1. Oh, QE1. Yes. 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 So end of 2008, where I thought by then I would have an offer in hand or a couple of offers, things were looking rather bleak. And this gentleman by the name of Stephen O'Grady comes on campus to recruit. His sons had attended other NESCAT schools like Middlebury and Bowdoin. So he always liked to select from that crop. 
And he was involved in something called ETFs at the time. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. So I remember at the time, the, the foremost source was not even Index Universe. It was yahoo.com, <laughs> uh, where I read about ETFs the night before and kind of just crammed and then went into the interview, did well on the interview on campus. And he said, oh, you're going to come to New York and interview with the traders. You know, you mentioned Yahoo Finance. I used to get so much flack at Double Line because when it was early on, we couldn't afford the Bloomberg. And so my real-time data came from finance.yahoo.com. And everyone used to make fun of me. I'm like, but I it, got real-time quotes was, and you don't. It was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty good back in the day. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up interviewing in person back in New York City. And my first job out of college ended up being as an international ETF market maker at Kellogg Capital Markets. Kellogg is uh, now defunct, but at the time, Kellogg was actually a very active lead market maker within the ETF space, both in providing seed capital and making markets in a number of ETFs. And Steve O'Grady was kind of this old school icon in that he had traded on the floor and traded under the specialist system on the Amex. And at the time, before the NYSE ARCA uh, merger, a good portion of ETFs actually used to trade on the floor of the Amex. And that's kind of where Kellogg excelled. If anybody out there is familiar with the specialist system, uh, I would argue that it was very accommodating to a select few of firms, uh, those firms that had seats on the floor of the exchange and you know were capable of essentially opening markets where they wanted and taking the bulk of the market share really benefited during that time period. Yeah. But then that was there was a transition uh, post-acquisition of NYSE where everybody essentially moved to upstairs market making. And this is kind of the critical point where I would argue that Explain the difference of that between downstairs, upstairs. So with upstairs market making, essentially you're providing markets on screens, right? You don't have floor brokers that are kind of in charge of handling flow. And with that, I would argue that at that point is where you saw this sort of quantitative push really start to affect ETF market making and trading. And uh, unfortunately at the time, uh, I think it was hard for Kellogg to kind of evolve in that system. And eventually uh, the firm kind of, basically just dissolved. Uh, they had sold their, some of their lead market making products, I believe, to um, Knight Capital Group, yeah. which also That's another story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, sort of dissolved. So I ended up leaving there in May of 2010 and was looking for a job. And I remember going through the Bowdoin alumni database network and there were job postings and there was something for an ETF analyst position over at this company called Index Universe. And I saw the name under the posting and it was Matt Hogan, who I believe has been on the podcast before. Yep. And so I, I looked up the job posting. I was like, oh, this is a no brainer. Perfect fit. San Francisco startup scene done. And I went, I found Matt's contact info. I called him up and I was like, look, there's no one my age that you will find out there that knows more about ETFs than I do. I've been pricing these products. I've been helping to trade them at my previous firm. I'm the guy that you should be trying to hire or one of the folks that ABC. you should be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he goes, okay, I'll have you talk to my director of research, Elizabeth Kashner. And my first assignment was basically a writing sample. They didn't even want to, like, they were fine about my knowledge of ETFs, but they just wanted to see how I wrote. And my first writing assignment was on the economics of the secondary market in shoes, particularly Air Jordans. All right. So I used to be a, a pretty big collector, I would say, like in my early twenties. Sneakerhead? I am a sneakerhead. Okay. Um, I, I don't know if I can still claim that anymore. I kind of stopped once I got to like my late twenties. But uh, at that Are point, you run out of room, 
or is it you know it was room and then i wasn't wearing them and then also they actually kind of became a weird alternative asset class (laughs) um so then it's like oh like should i wear these now that they're worth 3x more yeah uh so i became more interested in sort of liquidating the shoes that i acquired but I, i wrote this paper on how the secondary market worked and how it was fragmented because at the time it was really kind of between ebay and craigslist but if you think about it from a trading perspective there are issues with how you clear because it's not you're not exactly sure that shoes are going to be 100 fungible i.e you can get fake pairs of shoes um delivery also, risk is very important delivery risk is yeah. very important you can get uh robbed if you're meeting somebody up so where <laughs> you're choosing to actually exchange the asset for cash matters a lot uh, now, of course, you know, over a decade later, later there is uh, there's StockX, which is kind of what I was arguing for, if I remember in my paper, that there should be this sort of central clearing facility. And this was a growing asset class or sub asset class alternative. Um, but yeah, I ended up getting the job and moving to San Francisco and working at Index Universe and then ETF.com for almost four years. Uh, helping them build their ETF analytics school. So that's really where I sort Which of- Which is a phenomenal product these days. So yeah, it just it was, um, it's been sold to FactSet. So it's a little sad to see like how everything splintered, but- And now it's expensive. Unlike the very... finance. <laughs> <laughs> As it should be though. Yeah, we but... worked very hard on that product um, and we were sort of really focused on the ideology of passive investing. So I would say that- between Matt Hogan, Elizabeth Kashner, and Dave Nottig. That's yep. sort of where I was baptized in the sort of the comforts and the benefits of passive investing and the good that ETFs were doing in terms of what they were bringing to the market and the level of access they were bringing to investors. All right. So how did this altruistic behavior, you know, you're spreading the gospel, right? <laughs> so you're doing all of that. How, how did you get back into market making? So uh, in one short term, startup life. Right. So we were kind of working on building our runway as we were building a product. So initially, when we were hired at ETF.com, we were supposed to be the analyst designing and working on the product. We did that for about two and a half years. And then it became time to sell the product and get it off the ground. Here's one thing I'll say about the commercial aspect of passive investing. Theoretically, it's really a decision that you should make once, maybe twice, if you need to rebalance. This is not a product that I would say uh, really could lend itself to being commercially sold over and over again, right? It's not a a five-star rating system where the best performing fund last year is now getting the highest ranking. This was really about looking at ETFs, how they approach the market, and which ETF within its sub-asset class, within its segment, uh, provided the best exposure to an investor of accessing that market. So and define best. Like, uh, how are you guys trying to quantify that? Uh, nowadays, all we hear is cheap, 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 fee, fee, fee. So a lot of work was done in the early days of looking across the entire space of index providers and who did the best job of capturing the best investable market within their space. So how are you looking at fixed income? How are you looking at the equity market? What is actually accessible to investors? And then from your index methodology and rules, how does that get sort of factored in to the index that you're then broadcasting to the world and saying, this is the bogey by which funds should be measured. Then on top of that, you know, how are the funds actually tracking and performing relative to that index and providing that exposure, as well as the sort of liquidity dynamics of the fund. Um, So we really took a very strong approach to, you should have access to beta, you should have access to all the investable beta, uh, within that respective market. And obviously you can imagine where 
folks might not agree with this, uh, particularly thematic ETFs, right? If a thematic ETF maybe falls into a larger mid-cap category, it's not exactly aiming to capture that market. So funds like that had a hard time of being looked at yeah. uh, within their own right under the system. But for the most part, if you're thinking about designing a sort of basic long-term portfolio for an investor, that's really who this product was designed for at the end of the day. But as you think about thematic ETFs too, because you're sitting here, you're, you're trying to circle the square with long-term investing, delivering beta. Is thematic really something investors should be thinking about? Is it a periphery asset class? Or like, how, how do you think about, I mean, because there's a plethora of yeah. thematic ones these days. It's like, whatever was on the, you know, in the news yesterday, there's going to be an ETF about it, right? Yeah. So how, how do you how do you kind of put that all together? I mean, I, I always think at the end of the day that I particularly appreciate ETFs for giving investors that access and sort of adding a democratic approach to the capital markets. So I think there is a space for thematic ETFs. I think the extent to which it should comprise a large percent of your portfolio, hopefully that's not the case, right? But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think they offer investors not just a means of access, but also a means of staying engaged within the markets. And maybe, you know, it's not to say that there isn't some aspect of price discovery that can be available in thematic ETFs. So there is a place for them. Whether they should be a core position, I, I don't know if I can ever support that. Yeah, that's fair. So uh, walk me through this too. So at Jane Street, like how does Jane Street fit in the ecosystem? Because I, I, I'm not sure a lot of our listeners completely know the name, but a lot of people, if you don't transact and, and you're in market making or you know, you're out there trying to get quotes, they may not know who you are. So give us a little bit of background. How does Jane Street fit into the whole ETF ecosystem? Sure. So the story for Jane Street starts in 2000. And originally Jane Street, was really designed as a proprietary trading firm. So we had no clients. Uh, we were simply kind of focused on our own internal strategies and then accessing the liquidity that was available in the market. And we originally started with ADRs. And if you think about it, ADRs kind of are quasi like ETFs. And that, yeah, they were, yeah, yeah, you have this wrapper around this uh, security and slowly from ADR market making and the strategies that they built there, they went into ETFs options, and then really developed what I would argue is one of the strongest uh, sort of expertises on the street within the fixed income space and liquidity providing by nature of the growth within fixed income ETFs, and then forcing them to sort of go into providing liquidity in the underlying cash bond market. So that growth was massive over the first 14 years of the business. Then about 2014, it became clear uh, just by the fact that Jane Street was not only providing liquidity to institutional investors without knowing just by the fact that they're interacting in the market, but we were sort of uh, the market makers market maker where we were providing liquidity to a lot of market makers that were then interacting with clients directly. And it kind of became clear before then at that point, uh, especially with, I think at the time when I was looking at it, something like a third of all ETFs by volume were trading off exchange. So that is an indication that a lot of volume is trading directly uh, bilaterally with clients. <laughs> but, but however, explain that to our listeners off the screen, because people think about ETFs as like, I pull up a screen, I pull up yeah. my screen, I go through my brokerage account, and I see it on there. What does it mean to trade off the screen? And what, how do you guys support depth of markets doing that? Sure. So the sort of basic way to break it out is uh, 
as a client, you can have what's called DMA. So direct market access, where you can trade directly with the liquidity that's available on the screen, i.e. the depth of the order book. So there's a bid in the offer, and then there's sort of growing bids and offers below that at increasing prices. So clients can kind of interact that way. They can utilize algos. They can go and just lift directly or sell directly, um, where you're sort of in charge of your execution style. Then there's off exchange trading, where literally similar to you know how bonds are traded, a client can call or over a Bloomberg chat, uh, reach out to a dealer and say, hey, I need a market for a million shares, and we'll give you a price on that. And as you saw institutional growth and adoption within the ETF space, there's become an increasing need to access that block liquidity that's available. And the thing about ETFs that's sort of always key to remember is that liquidity on screen or what you're seeing on screen is by no ways indicative of the liquidity that's available within that ETF. Which is crazy. I, that's, I scratched my head when I first learned this in 2013 about that. I'm like, what do you mean? I mean, and, that is by definition liquidity. So expand on that idea. So that the key component behind that, there's two things. There's the creation redemption me mechanism where APs and market makers can go out and create new shares of an ETF by literally going out, accessing the underlying basket of securities and then delivering them to the issuer. And then they can also redeem ETFs in kind or in, for cash where they'll go out as we're buying shares on the exchange or directly from clients. We'll go back to the issuer and say, here, here's 100,000 shares of this particular ETF. Give me the underlying basket of securities and components. And it's through this sort of create redeem mechanism that aids in helping to make sure that ETF prices are in line with the underlying value of the basket of securities and the fund. But it's also through that create redeem mechanism by which the real liquidity that's available within an asset class then becomes readily available to clients that are trading OTC. Yeah. So at any given point, especially uh, post flash crash of uh, May 2009, there was sort of a movement to provide less liquidity on screens, I would argue, where there wasn't as much capital being posted because of all the crazy prices that occurred and hit the tape during the flash crash. And that kind of also helped to drive more of this off exchange liquidity and trading that was available directly to clients. So you've really seen sort of an acceptance of that where clients can not only get enhanced pricing sometimes relative to what they're seeing on screen, but also can access more of the liquidity available by nature of the create redeem mechanism. We saw this recently, just uh, as an anecdote, we had a client that the portfolio was like $4 million. The client wanted to put in 40. And so I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, well, you need to leg in the trade. And our capital markets guy is like, no. this is why we hired him. By the way, he goes, pick up the phone. Yeah. He's like, we can do 40 million right now. Yeah. NAV, you know, NAV plus a tick. And it's like, what? Exactly. Because you would never think that in other fund structures, right? Yeah. And bam, the clearly showed up. The create redeem process worked. And all of a sudden, you know, this, this huge size comes in. It's 10x the size of the fund. Yeah. No impact market. No. I mean, that's amazing. And if you think about it, there is something to be said about sort of uh, the sort of distribution of how liquidity is being accessed. Whereas if you thought about, say, that trade within the mutual fund structure, right? Literally cash is being over handed over to the PM and then the PM has to decide, how am I actually going to execute this cash and put it to work? Uh, whereas if we're trading ETFs and selling ETFs to a client, chances are we're also acquiring those underlying securities in real time where we are then prepared come time of the creation 
to hand over those securities to the issuer or the PM at the issuer, uh, usually in kind, sometimes in cash. Um, and then you basically facilitate that in kind transaction. So it becomes a lot more seamless and investors kind of benefit from it at the end of the day. Yeah, so you know, you touched on a number of things, you know, especially around providing liquidity. But could you, and you talked about the flash crash and the impact that it had there. But can you kind of run us through, you know, some of the situation behind the scenes when liquidity perhaps dries up in times of market disorder or stress? Um, I see on your in your bio here that you also uh, were high high yield credit high yield cash trader on on the fixed income desk. Just thinking about you know the potential for this liquidity mismatch between you know, the perception that you can trade the ETF, you know, intraday, any second of the, of the trading hours, but you might have a very illiquid asset as the underlying. Yeah. Or even, you know, let's take it a step further and say you're in a different region, you're trading assets in a different region that might have different market hours for you, where yeah. you don't have a true, you have to make an estimate of, let's say, the, uh, the NAV on those yeah. assets. So just kind of putting that all together and just your seamless role of just making all the magic happen behind the curtain like we're talking about here. I think at the end of the day, when you're looking at volatility and bid-ask spreads, what you're really paying for is a degree of uncertainty, right? So when spreads are tight and vol is low, there's a little bit more certainty from the market maker's perspective, especially of an ETF of where the underlying value of that basket is at any given point in time. When you see volatility spike and you see spreads widen out, that is essentially the market communicating that when you have to pay for liquidity, but two, there's a higher degree of uncertainty of where this basket is trading at any given time. So going into credit specifically, what you tend to see happen within the ETF market is that during times of stress, fixed income ETFs end up being the sort of price discovery function and when you counter that versus what's going on in the fixed income market and the underlying cash bond market, you tend to see liquidity kind of dry and freeze up a bit. And why is that? I think part of that is market structure where a lot of bond trading still is OTC, where you literally have to interact in chats. You have to call up your select dealers. You have to negotiate over the phone. There's now, of course, uh, methods of electronic trading available in fixed income where you can access things like uh, Market Access or Bloomberg, TradeWeb. But even so, because of sort of the, the additional friction within bond trading and the level of access too, you tend to see that liquidity dry up fairly quickly once vol spikes. On the ETF side, however, that level of access doesn't stop, right? So there's always a price on screen to a large degree. But also if you think about it from a diversification perspective, it's much easier to get a sense of what a basket of securities should be trading at than say where an off the run AT&T bond should be trading at. And I think that is why you tend to see along with just level of access, ease of execution, where you see that there's usually a shift, a significant shift to price discovery occurring within the fixed income ETF side, as opposed to the underlying credit markets. Uh, when it comes to, say, international ETFs and some of the dislocations that can occur there, a lot of the times market makers are thinking about what the correlation is, what the betas are to the underlying asset class during U.S. market hours. So a lot of that is based on history, what has happened in the past, and that can inform you to some degree about what's going to occur in the future. But then you also have to factor in your own cost of executing within those markets and what you expect your impact to be. Ideally, if you're looking at this from a quantitative perspective, 
your pencil should be sharpened with each go around, right? So folks should be getting better at this where a lot of the price discovery say available in EEM is really reflective of what would occur in those underlying markets at that given time if those underlying markets were open during US market hours. Now, it's interesting you say this too, because you know, looking, let's say in March of 2020, right? We saw, you know, fixed income ETFs just get whacked. And, yeah. and so, you know, you're going to get the critics out there go, wait, well, look, look at the discount to NAV, you know, the ETFs broken to which a lot of us said, no, that's where the bonds are trading. It's just the pricing service is slow no, to catch up. Exactly. So the NAV is a little stale, but that actually was the price of the market. And it went the other way. Well, as soon as the Fed stepped in, offer jump seven points that was the market yeah so they weren't trading at a premium it's really where that price discovery function was so and we saw this like last week yeah. it's hit it was full lift lift the thon is what yeah. someone called lift it you know last week <laughs> and it was like wow it's not at a one point premium probably that's where the bond because our cash guys are saying no no the bonds aren't trading there. i mean it's the offer is way above this yeah. stuff right so so i think there is something to this story at least like you know, being a naive observer, learning more about it. But now take me through the process of like, how do you manage your own risk, right? So we're talking about liquidity, you're altruistic, you're helping the world. How do you protect Ugo's seat? What do you do to risk manage these positions? And how do you think about that when making markets? Well, flows usually are not all in one direction. So a lot of the times we're looking across the space to understand what's going on. Uh, especially within fixed income from, from sort of a sub-asset class basis. So there are times where you might see inflows into one ETF product and outflows from another that sort of offsets the two yeah. and helps the pricing come back in line. And to that degree, because we're accessing client flows, because we're in touch with clients, that helps us to sort of access risk. But then fixed income as well, though, you have to keep in mind, we're also providing markets within the underlying cash bond market. So from a theoretical perspective, right? The sort of flows and the direction of flows that you see at the ETF layer really should correspond to what's going on in the underlying cash bond markets. So to the extent that there are outflows in one direction, you should be offsetting that with inflows or buying securities, right? And that is sort of a means by which we manage risk where we're involved in the primary market for fixed income ETFs. I think we comprise something of, I want to say 40 to 50% maybe of primary fixed income ETF transactions where we are turning over our balance sheet directly with ETF issuers. And by nature of that, we're, we become such a large player within the underlying cash bond market. But we also realized, especially come 2016, that we were crossing bid ask often. And that slippage also is sort of a cost at the end of the day. So it made sense to start to face clients directly to kind of give and help them have access to liquidity that we had by nature of providing markets on the ETF side. So in theory, how this would work is when there are outflows coming out of ETFs and people are selling ETFs and we are by nature coming in, into inventory of bonds, we should be better offers on the cash bond side and directly sort of providing that price improvement to investors that are looking for bonds at the end of the day. And that sort of core component is what helps us to manage risk significantly. I will say that you know, we're not a bulge bracket bank, but in a sense, we are kind of participating in some similar markets. I've often seen that 
our market share tends to go up during times of volatility because we are the ones willing to sort of provide liquidity in both spaces, whether it be the underlying cash bond market or on the ETF side. Yeah. Now, what about the evolution of the market? I mean, here we are as an active manager talking to you. Obviously, we don't offer the passive product space, right? We have, we have some systematic on the equity side. We obviously are extremely active on the fixed income side. H- how do you, as a market maker, think about the passive product versus the active product? Do you treat them different uh, from a risk management standpoint? How are you approaching that market? I mean, it's a growing part of the market, obviously. There's a lot of sponsors and issuers out there. But how do, how do you approach, is, is it a different approach to you know, making markets in a active versus passive? So there is to some degree, and I'll go back to the word that I used earlier, which is certainty and uncertainty, right? With a passive product, with an index methodology that we can all go out and read and get a sense and understanding of how the PM for that fund might think about execution. Yeah, the, the 84 page index methodology, <laughs> that's very, very fun to read, right? It's yeah. very fun. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is it's what we all do. I yeah. <laughs> but uh, all of that provides a very high level of certainty in terms of what you can expect, not just an exposure, but an execution for the fund, transaction costs and impact. When it comes to an active strategy, you lose a lot of that certainty. So Certainly, you might see spreads be a little bit wider for an active product compared to, say, it's a large cap active product versus SPY. Um, But the degree to which the market maker becomes more comfortable with how the PM is executing, how they're thinking of providing that exposure, how they put cash to work, that helps to sort of bring spreads in line at the end of the day. There's also just the sort of the transactional cost to consider, right? Because a lot of times with active, I'm not handing over, especially in non-transparent active, uh, I'm not handing over that sort of in-kind basket of securities. The PM has the discretion on what they're executing and how they execute it. So to the degree to which there is slippage there and you sort of learn and understand that slippage from a behavioral perspective over time, that aids in making markets. But there's always going to be that discrepancy and it really just comes down to, do we understand this product well? Do you understand how the PM thinks about the space, how the fund thinks about the space, and ultimately, what is their slippage and transaction? So all those conversations there? I've had with you coming in, explaining <laughs> how we run money, how we think about it, you're saying it's helping the product. It helps the product okay. at the end of the day, because okay. all of this provides tighter markets for investors when they're coming out to access that liquidity on screens. But when you think about it from a sort of trading perspective with ETFs, right, there's always going to be a cost from liquidity to some degree. And ideally, you want to be in a position to switch the cost of liquidity to those that want liquidity at a given point in time, right? The long-term passive holders should not be charged for liquidity. And that's what I think is really beneficial about the ETF structure is that if you were to have a case where it was a passive mutual fund and investors wanted out at a given time, it's the investors that are left in the fund that are really going to end up paying for that. It's not the person coming out. So with that, I mean, we talked about one of the evolutions. The big one is, you know, moving from just being passive only type of index-based products to including active management as well. But what do you see as kind of the next step, the next evolution that could take place in the ETF vehicle? Wow. Crystal ball time. Crystal ball. So is there a need that needs to be filled that, or that's yet unfilled? Or I'm sure there are. I, I, I mean, I, as a... Uh... As someone who is very partial to the digital asset space, 
yeah, at some point there probably should be or will be uh, a digital assets ETF that provides spot exposure as opposed to futures or equity products. Um, and the nuance but, there is that like a lot of people understand is like, unlike other futures markets where you deliver in the future, yeah. there's really no mechanism to get the ARB in line. So the curves can get really wacky. Exactly. There can be like backwardation or contango at any given point in time. Um, and people have learned that with like USO, for yeah. instance, right? That they don't understand like, well, oil went up, but I lost money. Well, you had a massive yeah. contango curve, curve, right? So, um, and today we have just the opposite. You make money from, from the curve. So. Yeah. So, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, my sort of teachings and I can hear Matt Hogan in the back of my head right now, just being like passive investing is the way. I think a lot of the ETFs out there that investors need already exist. Um, the sort of core portfolio holding in terms of the exposures that folks need, the average investor that they need, the large part already exists. When you think about the growth of institutional investors and maybe them having access to sharpen their exposures, but still have access to that sort of exchange liquidity. Yeah, certainly within the fixed income space, there's probably a few products. And we've seen recent launches where, you know, particularly within the high yield space, there have been sector ETF launches. I think now we're also starting to see, I think, uh, you know, there's something to be said about the fixed income ETF market maturing and institutional investors getting a little bit more comfortable with the product and then saying, okay, how far can I take this, right? You've seen the growth of and the sort of launch of CLO products. Obviously, bank loans have been huge uh, within the fixed income I'm ETF. I'm a little nervous space. about that new uh, CLO. That, it doesn't look liquid. <sighs> we'll, we'll see we'll how see. it We'll, we'll see. see. <laughs> well, I mean, look, we have a good stress <laughs> test right now. Yeah. But like, what happens when there's a couple yards in this product and we have a little turmoil? I mean, those, those double Bs and lower, I mean, they gap, right? I, I, don't I know, will, it seems dangerous. I will I, I'm always, not opining on yeah. the management or anything. I'm just saying, <laughs> as someone who is in that market, it can get dicey. I will, I will say this, and I will continue to say this, that liquidity is a price that investors that are seeking it at the current time should pay, right? So if you're a long-term investor looking for exposure to a product, that's not really something I'd be concerned about. If you're someone looking to trade in and out, well, Go trade in and out of a CLO basket and tell yeah. me how easy that is. That's Go trade not, in and out yeah. of a bank loan basket yeah. and tell me how easy that is. Yeah. So there, there is a cost. There's always going to be a cost yeah. to providing liquidity. Um, but yeah, I would say there, there probably is still some room for growth and innovation. But for the bulk of investors out there, uh, a lot of what exists is probably just fine. And uh, I think that, you know, like I... One of my good friends actually just launched an ETF today. It was another thematic ETF. Uh, there, is, there is something to be said about thematic ETFs and how they sort of get retail investors interested within the space. So maybe to that degree, uh, there's more work to be done. Yeah. Well, one other thing too is, you know, you talk about institutional investors and obviously they trade blocks, they do size, things that really promote liquidity in markets, but they're not extremely active all the time. I mean, they're, they're, they're managing money, but you know, they're making these allocations very yeah. infrequently. So what I've noticed over time too, is that, you know, it used to be the futures market that, that the institutional investor really liked. But what I've noticed over the last decade is it seems like futures tend to be less used. What do you see there? Is that because it's the ETF replacement? Again, I, I know you're not a futures expert. Yeah. They are, and I just don't know it. <laughs> um, but you know, how do you think? Because I was always amazed, like in the mid 2000s, there's this big commodity boom and no one traded 
the commodity index futures. Yeah. It was all OTC because the price was better. And I'm like, how can that be? You know, so how, how do you think about that? The interaction, the futures market and like, is it the institutional investor just used it less or, or is it, is it really the ETF is kind of plugging some of that gap? I think the ETF is just adding another layer within the toolbox. So if you think about where liquidity is available in the market at any given point in time, right? Just even just sticking to credit. Now you have access to portfolio trading. You have access to fixed income ETFs. Explain portfolio trading to us. So ourselves. portfolio trading is essentially very similar to trading an ETF, except you're trading a basket of bonds at any given point in time and going out to dealers and saying, I would like a price on this basket. It can be risk pricing or it could be relative to a uh, third party marketing service. So call it IDC, call it BVAL, uh, call it IBOX. And I think at the end of the day, the sort of shift can just really kind of to some degree be explained as investors wanting another key within their toolbox. A lot of the stories that we still hear from institutional investors and why they're using ETFs, it's not that their core exposures within the underlying markets are going away, but it's that they're adding that liquidity sleeve layer. So when they do run into liabilities or they need to pay out investors with the fund, they can access this liquidity layer without then going into the underlying markets, which are in the core portfolios where they might experience wider bid ask spreads. And I, I think to a large degree, the level of access within the ETF market, the ease of transaction, the fact that on a normal day, you can expect that spreads will be relatively tight, especially at an institutional level, does provide a degree of comfort to folks where if you're trading in sort of the traditional asset class, maybe you don't necessarily get that in the same way. Yeah. But at least you get to compare and contrast to see which tool within that toolbox will give you the least amount of impact. Yeah. All right. So we've kind of covered the bulk of the world here when it comes <laughs> across the ETF platform. So what is the one takeaway you want our listeners to gather from our conversation today? What is the one thing out there that, you know, most people either misunderstand about an ETF or you don't, you, or you, you want to proselytize the world, right? This is your altruistic time. Give us your, your soundbite here, what everyone needs to know. What everybody needs to know. Um, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to say there's three things that okay, everybody needs to fine. know. One, I would argue that ETFs have really provided to investors a democratic means of accessing the market, which they didn't really have access to, uh, call it some odd 30 years ago. Two, I would say with that, is that being able to understand the value of interacting with a liquidity provider, especially as an institutional investor, or anybody that has the ability to step out and trade on their own is very key. And it's something like, I was just running numbers today. I was like, all right, if you're doing a $100 million transaction, you get a fifth of savings, compound that over 10 years at 7%, right? You doubled your money. Now, just imagine that with multiple $100 million transactions going forth. And sure, you know, 20,000 here and there over 10 years sounds like nothing to us for money managers that are looking at these massive portfolios, but that's an extra liability that's met for the dependence of the fund, whether you're managing a pension or an insurance general account. That $20,000, $40,000 makes a huge world of difference in terms of how you can actually benefit your investors. And I think at the end of the day, really paying attention to execution costs is key. Uh, the third thing I would add is that understanding net asset value by asset class is very key. I think coming out of the mutual fund world, uh, folks are still very kind of complacent in looking at 
premiums and discounts relative to NAV. Where because of interrate trading, we now have to have more of a discussion around how NAV is calculated. So even during March of 2020, you know, there was a huge discussion around fixed income ETFs and premiums and discounts. But I really saw outside of ETF issuers, folks that were bringing up these problems, having a core understanding of how NAV is arrived at, right? 3 p.m. bid side yeah. NAV, when the ETF closes at 4 p.m. There's no consolidated tape within the cash bond market. It's, yeah. it's trace data, it's stale, and it's capped for IG and for high yield, right? So that, that level of price discovery and information that's available is still largely subjective when you compare it to what's acceptable on the equity side. And I think it's key for investors to understand that before sort of engaging in these discussions around, oh, this is trading at a 1% premium or a 2% discount. Um, but yeah, those are my core three takeaways. That's, I your, cheated. that's your one takeaway <laughs> that everybody should know is three things. 1A, 1B, and 1C. Oh, there you go. There you go. Um, so Ugo, how, how can people get access to your thinking? Where can they you know, learn more about these ideas that you write about, you talk about? What's the best way for them to get access? Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm fairly easy to find. It's just I'm the only you go at Jane Street. Okay. Um, or you can shoot us an email or go to the website. It's janestreet.com. Uh, all the contact info is there for our institutional services team. But it's a great group of folks uh, that have been in the industry for years. And obviously, you know, the firm has grown a significant amount, but we've still managed to maintain that culture that we have of Jane Street of just everybody being a thinker and being curious. And we're always happy to talk to investors and just share ideas. Well, we appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks so for having thank me. you. Um, but as you know, we, before we let you go, oh, boy. I introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. So Sam. <laughs> All right, Hugo. So my favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. It's where I will offer you and Jeff Sherman a series of alternating prompts to which I hope to get a top of mind response. Uh, we try to keep concise. We used to try to keep it to one word. We failed at that multiple times over, myself included. So uh, we're going to just ask for a concise response here. And I'm going to give the example out with Sherman first for summer gasoline. Expensive. And it ain't getting any cheaper. Don't seem like it. Doesn't. Uh, yeah, someone earlier was talking about nine bucks a nine bucks a gallon this morning. Yeah, point, I did so. see Ooh. the seven handles Ooh. you were talking about. Uh, luckily, I, I got in under seven, so I felt like it was a steal. <laughs> it's the price of liquidity. Yeah, just don't start hoarding it in your garage. So you know, storage of gasoline isn't always safe. <laughs> so, so, all right, over to you. You go with quantitative tightening, MBS sales. Ooh. Not a zip zero. Active ETFs. Someday. Back to you, Jeff, with corporate earnings. Surprisingly relatively robust. You know, I mean, you wouldn't look at it from looking at stock price. Here I go on my ramp. But if you look at stocks, how they perform, you know, it, it's pretty amazing to see earnings are still delivering. Now it's nominal, you know, so that's inflationary, but earnings are relatively healthy. So yeah. uh, we're seeing the multiple compress on two fronts. One is prices have obviously went down, but the E is growing. So this is better for investors over the long term. The multiple being lower gives you the potential mm -hmm. for higher return opportunities. Yes. All right. Uh, back to you. You go with liquidity. Always available. There is a price. 
I like it. I like that. No, no bad bonds, just bad prices. <laughs> prices right? Autopilot. Oh, Jay. Oh, Jay, quit saying it. Um, <laughs> there is no autopilot. We need someone to man the ship. Jay, we're looking to you. Man the ship. I'm worried about you and your QT that's starting this. Month. Oh, man. Keep eyes on it. Stay in front of it. Don't outsource it to Elon. No autopilot. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this is very encouraging. Yeah. yeah. Do your job. Don't outsource it. <laughs> Real wages. <laughs> I was going to say something. Yeah. No, no. Real wages. Real wages. Hope. I hope real wages yeah. go up. From a societal, yeah, no, it's healthy, fabric, right? So. It's yeah. healthy. I mean, look, we've seen it at the lower cohort. Like, if you look at either um, on on income levels or age, which are typically at the lower end of the strata, you've actually seen real wage growth. Yeah. That is, it, it is outstripped inflation, and that is good for the economy. Yeah. So, I, I completely agree. Yeah, with that's that exactly idea. where you want it in that cohort. Right. So, let's see. I forgot who this one is. That's uh, for you, Sherman uh, Volker. Oh man. That's a heavy one. That's like Freddy Krueger, right? I, I don't want to dream about Volker. Not just not just from the size of the man. It was like six seven yeah, or something. Big dude. And I, I there's a guy I followed on Twitter. He used to use his avatar. Was Volker smoking a huge cigar? Like yeah. that was his like avatar and everything. And it's just I don't know. In my, I always think of that in my mind that this big intimidating man who was not scared of anything. So um, I hope that Jay Powell is not Volker for all our sakes right now. <laughs> But if we need to, you know, um, you know, may maybe he will be. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. Keep, no, it, it didn't seem like, uh, from what Professor Schiller said this morning, it doesn't seem like Powell may have the what it takes to to break the economy, to break inflation. But, yeah, it's uh, funny. Mm. It's funny too because there's something in in the industry called the Volcker rule, and it has nothing to, <laughs> to do, do with, with with all of this stuff we talk about. <laughs> The yeah. Volcker rule is we're going to crush inflation in my mind, not, yeah, not yeah. what Wall Street got implemented. So anyway, yeah, not the GFC stuff. Yeah. All right. And then the last one here, Ugo, you can breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, let's see. How about nickname? Oh, boy. Uh, nickname? Wilberforce. What was it? Wilberforce. <laughs> that is my middle name. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And a few people have called me out on it over the years. You know, well, maybe I, our two listeners will now. I'll give a shout out to one of our listeners because he always said when he gets on Twitter, his handle is going to be inverted contango. <laughs> and I'm like, I was like, Top Gun is what I'm thinking since that's coming out. But I'm like, you do know that's called backwardation, by the way. You know. So anyway, um, it was a pleasure as always. Thanks always enjoy the me. dialogue. Thanks for coming in and having a good time with us, educating our listeners. Uh, no this problem. is the Sherman Show. We're going to take a little hiatus after this. Uh, we're going to get back on the grind again, get you some great guests like we've had this season. And stay tuned. Catch us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher. W what's your favorite podcast app? Still the iTunes app. iTunes app. The iTunes app for Ugo and all our listeners out there. Stay tuned. You got feedback. Hit us up on the Twitter at Sherman Show Pod or send us an email. Go old school with it. Sherman Show at DoubleLine.com. Awesome. Thanks again, everybody. Take care and best of luck out there.
presentation represents Double Nine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of Double Nine. Double Nine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Double Nine, please contact media at doubleline.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2021, Double Line Capital.